welcome to worship here at Northminster Church. We are so glad that you are present with us on this rather chilly morning. Whether you're joining us in person or online, we are glad that you are here and hope that you will participate with us in all aspects of worship because, of course, the best thing we bring to worship is ourselves. We want to say a special word of welcome to anyone who might be visiting with us. We are glad that you are here as well. Uh, hope that you will join us uh, for all of the parts of our service, including communion. If you need instructions about that, you can find them in your order of worship. A few things of note today. The first is to say thank you to those who took care of the beautiful flowers, put these together this morning, and to remind you that they are dedicated this morning. So do please allow the dedicator to take flowers first and then help yourselves so they can brighten your day or someone else's as you go. Uh, I want to let you remind you of some upcoming events. Um, the first this evening is coordinating council at four o'clock. So if you are on the coordinating council, make, please make sure you're here. And then a very important business meeting at six. We will not have a potluck dinner, but it is important if you can be here to please come uh, because we will be voting on our new coordinating council leaders for next year and you do have to be present to vote. So. Uh, unlike the state of Louisiana and other places, no absentee voting here. I also want to remind you of the Agape meal that is coming up on the 20th. Um, if you have not yet signed up and want to attend, do please do that as soon as possible. The sign-up list is outside of my office. The price is $7 for individuals with a $25 cap for families. So the sooner you could uh, get your name on the list, we would appreciate it so we know who to plan for. Uh, let me think, as we look at our order of worship today, kids, again, as we have been doing, come up during the last verse of our opening hymn, and then I think that is really everything. It's a pretty normal day. So, let's take a deep breath together, friends. We do this to settle into worship and to try to let go of some of those things that you can't help but bring with you when you step into this sacred place. So as you breathe in, breathe in quiet, breathe in the joy of gathering with this family of faith, breathe in peace. As you breathe out, breathe out your distractions as best you can, breathe out your concerns, breathe out anything that would keep you from worshiping with your whole self, and then if you would, please join me for our call to worship. Long ago, a vineyard was planted. The ground was prepared, and all was made ready. What happened in that place of promise? Let us turn again to the Lord, who will again plant prune, and cause us to grow in faithfulness. Let us open our hearts to God, trusting in God's face and God's word. Amen. Amen.
Can you all turn so I can see your faces? Can you turn around and face me? Thank you. So, here's what we're going to talk about today. We've kind of been talking about churchy things, like the narthex. Who remembers where the narthex is? It's out there. Yes. And who remembers where the pyramids are? Yep, it's those green cloths. You guys are getting it. We're also going to talk today about something else you really usually only have at church. Um, a pastor. Pastors. That's me. That's also Pastor Debbie and Pastor DH. We're all technically reverends. We've got some other reverends who are, well, Mark's not here today. Uh, neither's Welton, but we do have some other reverends in the church. But I want to talk to you about who can be a pastor. Who can be a pastor? You should all raise your hands. Can you all raise your hands? Who can be a pastor? You can. <laughs> who can be a pastor? People who don't have criminal work. Yes. People who don't have criminal work. I'm not laughing at you, honey. That is a good answer. That's important. Uh, but there are also people with criminal records in prison who can be pastors, too. They do have pastors in prison. It was a good answer. We're not laughing at you. It was a really good answer. I've lost track of where I was. Oh. So... <laughs> Anybody can be a pastor, so I want all of you to raise your hands. All of you raise your hands. Can you be a pastor? Who can be a pastor? All of you should raise your hands, too. <laughs> Anybody can be a pastor. You can put your hands down now. It doesn't matter if you have a criminal record. It doesn't matter if you're a boy or a girl. It doesn't matter if you have light skin like me or darker skin like some of you. It doesn't matter if you speak English. It doesn't matter if you speak... Spanish, like our friends in Cuba, anybody can be a pastor. And that's really important to know because sometimes people say, no, you have to be this way to be a pastor. Or you have to be male, you have to be a boy to be a pastor. Am I a boy? No. no. If I was, it would be okay, but I'm not. Pastor Debbie is a woman, Pastor DH is a man, but we're all pastors, right? I don't want you to ever think that there's a reason that if you grow up and you think, yeah, I think I want to be a pastor, that you can't do it because you can. What are you going to be when you grow up? A scientist. That's also very good and important. Oh, okay. That's what he's going to be. Good. And you were paying attention. Good for you. You guys can tell me what you're going to be when you grow up after church, okay? So... You're going to be a cow. Okay. So tell me after church. So if you grow up and you decide you want to be a pastor, that is wonderful. And you can. You absolutely can. you got to go to school. you got to learn some things. That's important. But any of you can be a pastor. And then you get to hang out and take care of all these people. Because another word that we talk about for pastor is shepherd. Do you know what a shepherd is? What's a shepherd? It's another word for pastor, but what does a shepherd do? Let me ask it that way. Yeah. A shepherd shepherds sheep. A shepherd takes care of sheep. Now, are all of you sheep? No. Are all these people sheep? No, they're people. You're related to them, but it is kind of the same because our job as pastors is to help take care of people. It's, we've talked about teaching, right? But we're also supposed to be there for people when they're sad or when somebody passes away, 
when somebody has a baby, when somebody gets a new job and is celebrating, we get to be there for all of those things. That's why, yeah, wow, that's why this is a really cool job. And see, a pastor could have come to that when you had your party. Because we get to go to all those sorts of things. That's why we love this kind of work. So I want you to think about that. In addition to being a scientist or paleontologist or whatever else you're thinking about, if you decide, you grow up and think, I could be a pastor. Yeah. Yeah, you could, and you'd probably be very good at it. So think about that this week, okay? Now, turn around, face the congregation. You are leading this. I want you to sit nice and tall, hands in your laps. Don't touch anybody. Good. Nice and tall. Adults, you're welcome to join in, but the kids are in charge. Here we go. I want you to say this back to me. I see the face of God in you. I see the face of God in you. You got to go slow. The love of Christ comes shining through. The love of Christ comes shining through. Kids, I think you can be louder. And I am blessed to be with you. And I am blessed to be with you. O holy child of God. O holy child of God. Amen. You can go back to your seats now and thank you. stand for our gospel
A reading from the Gospel according to Mark. Then Jesus started telling them stories, saying, A man planted a vineyard. He fenced it, dug a wine press, erected a watchtower, turned it over to the farmhands, and went off on a trip. At the time for harvest, he sent a servant back to the farmlands to collect his profits. They grabbed him, beat him up, and sent him off empty-handed. The Gospel of our Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. and in hope, let us offer our prayers to God, saying and rejoicing and singing with joy, for the coming of the Lord is near. For all who walk in God's holy way, for those in the pews and in the pulpits, those at home and on the streets, for all who ponder God's promise in their hearts, and all who carry the good news into the world, we rejoice with joy and singing, for the coming of the Lord is near. For the nations of the world and their leaders, that eyes may be opened and ears unstopped, and that peace and justice break forth in every land, we rejoice with joy and singing, for the coming of the Lord is near. For all the world, heaven and earth, the seas and all that is in them, for the early and the late rains, and for the precious crop from the earth, for the gathering darkness and the light of hope, we rejoice with joy and singing, for the coming of the Lord is near. For this community and all who live in it, each member of the whole body, friend and stranger, parent and child, brother and sister, widow and orphan, siblings in Christ, strengthen weak hands, dear God and make firm, feeble knees. Say to those who are hurt or are fearful, be strong and do not fear. We rejoice with joy and singing for the coming of the Lord is near. For all who are nearest to you, O God, the lonely, the out of work, the sick, the fearful, the cold, and the hungry, for the one who is sorry and the one who is ashamed, it is you, our God of hope, who sets all prisoners free. We rejoice with joy and singing, for the coming of the Lord is near. For all the departed and all who remember, we rejoice with joy and singing, for the coming of the Lord is near. We are waiting, O God, with all the patience we can muster. Beloved of angels and archangels, lover of saints and sinners, God our Savior, to you alone we pray. Amen.
reading from Isaiah 5, 1 through 7, and 11, 1 through 10. Let me sing for my dear friend a love song about his vineyard. My friend, whom I dearly love, had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He labored to prepare the ground, tilling the soil and digging out rocks, and then he planted it with the best plants he could find. In its midst, he built a watchtower over it and cut out a wine press in the hill nearby. Then he waited, hoping it would be bountiful. But the vineyard produced only wild, bitter grapes. The Eternal One said, that's it, enough. Now, you who live in my special city, Jerusalem, you people of this choice country, Judah, who is in the right, me or my vineyard? What else could possibly be done to make it flourish? What else could possibly be uh, Why, when I have had every reason to expect grape beauty and bushels of grapes, did it yield only wild, bitter fruit? I'll tell you what I'm going to do, what I'm determined to do to my vineyard. I'm going to take away its protective fence and let the deer, the raccoons, and the rabbits devour it. I'll break down its walls, let the vines be eaten and trampled. I will set it up for destruction, do no pruning, no tilling, and it will be overrun with nasty briars and thorn bushes. I will even order the clouds not to water it. See here, the vineyard of the eternal, the commander of heavenly armies, is the house of Israel, his special people. But on and the shoots and the buds he nursed so lovingly along are the people of his choice country, Judah. He expected a paragon of justice and righteousness, but everywhere injustice runs, blood red in the streets and cries echo in the city. But on this humbled ground, a tiny shoot, hopeful and promising, will sprout from Jesse's stump. A branch will emerge from his roots to bear fruit. And on this child from David's line, the spirit of the Eternal One will alight and rest. By the spirit of wisdom and discernment, he will shine like dew. By the spirit of counsel and strength, he will judge fairly and act courageously. By the spirit of knowledge and reverence he, of the Eternal One, he will take pleasure in honoring the Eternal. He will determine fairness and equity he will consider more than what meets the eye and weigh in more than what he's told so that even those who can't afford a good defense will nevertheless get a fair and equitable judgment. With just a word, he will end wickedness and abolish oppression. With nothing more than the breath of his mouth, he will destroy evil. He will clothe himself with righteousness and truth. The impulse to right wrongs will be in his blood. A day will come when the wolf will live peacefully by the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and yearling, newborn and slow, will rest secure with the lamb, and the little child will tend them all. Bears will graze with the cows they used to attack. Even their young will rest together, and the lion will eat hay like gentle oxen. Neither will the baby who plays next to a cobra's hole or, nor a toddler who sticks his hand into the nest of vipers suffer harm. 
All my holy mountain will be free of anything hurtful or destructive. For as the waters will fill the sea, the entire earth will be filled with the knowledge of the eternal. Then on that day, that root from Jesse's line will stand as a signal for the peoples of the world who will come to seek him, seeking guidance and direction. And the glory will be restored to the land where he resides. A reminder of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. O God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. And may we hear a word from you today. Amen. When Sam Cooke's song, A Change Is Gonna Come, hit the radio in 1964, people didn't get to hear the whole song. Inspired by Bob Dylan's protest song, Blowing in the Wind, Cook longed to explore something more serious in his music. This new sense of urgency was manifested in one of Change's most striking lines. I go to the movies and I go downtown, but somebody tells me don't hang around. But that potentially controversial line, remember it was 1964, was deleted when the song debuted on the radio, and the only way to hear it was to buy the long-playing album. Despite the censorship, A Change Is Gonna Come became part of the social consciousness as the civil rights movement continued without Cook, who was killed uh, later that year at the age of 33. Eventually, A Change Is Gonna Come became a metaphor for human uplift, and in the, the more than 40 years since its release, has grown into, a human, into an anthem of the civil rights movement, an epitaph for a great performer and an iconic piece of music I'm sure a lot of you know. Speaking truth to power, exposing injustice and corruption, calling for political and societal change, this is one of the many powers of music. And our modern music catalog is full of artists who use their music to comment on the world. Of course, in the, in the 60s and 70s, that was a, a blessed time for music that was uh, commenting on social justice, particularly with the Vietnam War. There's Edwin Starr's 1970s hit, War, and John Lennon's indelible 1971 song, Imagine, that we all know, those come to mind immediately. But jazz legend Billie Holiday took a risk even earlier. In 1939, she recorded the song Strange Fruit. Originally a poem written by Abel Meerpool, Strange Fruit was written as a stinging indictment of lynching and the treatment of African Americans in the United States. It is not an easy song to listen to, but it is now considered one of the greatest in recorded history and includes these lyrics that are hard to hear. Southern trees bear strange fruit, blood on the leaves and blood at the roots, black bodies swinging in the southern breeze, strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. 
U2's 1983 song, Sunday Bloody Sunday. Public Enemy's 1989 song, Fight the Power. Much of Willie Nelson's repertoire, even Macklemore's 2012 song called Same Love. They continue this truth-telling tradition. And all of these records have one thing in common. They are more than just love stories. They're comments on the world. This first half of this morning's Hebrews Bible passage from Isaiah 5, it's commonly called Isaiah's vineyard song. It's also a comment on the world. In addition, it's pure poetry. Because poetry gives God space to speak from a more theologically elevated, from a higher position than our normal dialogue is capable of. And poetry, by its very nature, makes memorization easier, though I don't think many of us are going to be memorizing these verses. Writing in the 8th century in Jerusalem, in about a rough contemporary to the prophet Hosea, Isaiah's voice is often raised in vehement castigations of social and economic injustices in Judah. But as with the prophet Nathan's rebuke of King David that we've talked about these past few weeks, Isaiah's message isn't immediately clear as he begins with this language of the vineyard. Now, that's a common motif for a lover because it's reminiscent of language from Song of Songs. God is the lover and the vineyard over which the lover's labor is the people of Israel. But Isaiah's tone changes in this fifth chapter. Here's part of what he says. Now I am going to tell you what to do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge that it may be ravaged. I will break down its wall that it may be trampled. And on it goes from there. It becomes apparent through the prophet that God is speaking and rebuking the people. As Rabbi Abraham J. Heschel notes, In his classic work called The Prophets, God's care for the vineyard has been to no avail. The people have turned away. They're worshiping other gods, and they have no use for the God who loves them so dearly. And yet, as Rabbi Heschel continues, God feels hurt at the thought of abandoning the vineyard, abandoning the people of Israel. God rejoices. In these people. She placed so much hope and care in them. The vineyard was planted to yield righteousness and justice, yet the only fruit it has yielded was violence and outrage. And so we hear God's plan to remove divine nurturing and protection from the vineyard, from the people. From taking away the hedges to controlling the weather, God describes the end of every protection, the removal of safeguards. And I want to be really clear here, this is a systematic uprooting. This is God going out to the vineyard like you would go out to the garden to dig up anything you don't want there anymore, by the root, by hand, pulling it out by the roots. It's kind of like when you need to get rid of Bermuda grass. Has anybody ever had to do that? Dig Bermuda grass out, those awful white, milky roots that can get through anything? Imagine God doing that. God is going to remove this vineyard, this people 
who have so broken her heart. And if God wasn't already disappointed, the vintner's expectation is brutally dashed in the poem's final verse. For it is a scathing conclusion to the poet's prophet's song. The wordplay here can't fully be conveyed in English, but the difference in meaning between a few like-sounding words in Hebrew makes the vineyard's yield clear. The flipping of these words expresses the perversion of values by the people of Judah. Here's what I mean. Where God looked for justice, that word is mishpat, there was bloodshed, mispeh. And instead of righteousness, sedech, there was an outcry of sadach. Do you hear how close those are? Where God looked for justice, there was bloodshed. And instead of righteousness, there was outcry. Those words are intentionally close. They intentionally sound the same to make the point of how much the mark has been missed. The closest English approximation to that, that line is this. He, and it is he in the text, he hoped for justice, and look, jaundice for righteousness, and look, wretchedness. He hoped for justice, and look, jaundice, for righteousness, and look, wretchedness. As Dr. Margaret O'Dell summarizes this verse, it, it suffices to say that the resulting harvest is not simply poor or inadequate, it is evil. I want you to think for a moment about the hymn Amazing Grace, performed an estimated 10 million times and appearing on over more than 11,000 recorded albums. You likely already know it was written by slave trader turned Anglican minister John Newton. What you might not know is that even after writing Amazing Grace in 1772, it took Newton 34 years to renounce his former profession as a slave trader. In the 1788 pamphlet, Thoughts Upon the Slave Trade, it was published for a shilling, and, and in it, Newton described the horrific conditions on slave ships and spoke of his shame at ever being involved in the trade. He said this in part, I hope it will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. Now I have to tell you, this is where the sermons uh, transitioned. Um, before I went to Montgomery this past week, we, a few of us went for uh, a fall gathering of the Alliance of Baptists. Our gathering focus was excavating our roots. That's the Alliance's continued effort for racial justice and, and racial reconciliation. And we had the privilege while we were in Montgomery to visit both the Legacy Museum and the National Memorial for Justice and Peace. I recommend them both to you highly, but don't do them on the same day. You'll be exhausted. But more importantly, I am, I'm mentioning this to you because I would be remiss if I didn't admit something I did not know before this weekend. The, the Friday that we were there, um, the uh, Alliance's co-director, um, Elijah Ziehu, he did an entire lecture 
about the history of slavery, the middle crossing. It was, it was expansive. And he made sure to mention in that lecture, in the portion about the middle passage, Newton and Amazing Grace. But he said something I didn't know, which was that when you look at Amazing Grace in the hymnal, Newton wrote the words, but the tune itself is unknown. And historians have started to suggest that perhaps it is unknown because it was taken as so much else was taken. Taken from the human beings forced into the bowels of Newton's slave ships. What they're suggesting is that Newton heard the people in the bowels of the ship singing this tune, and then he put words to it. <clears throat> I remind you of this. And, and tell you this thing that I had not known. Because like Isaiah's vineyard song, Amazing Grace is a story, excuse me, is a song inspired by darkness. It is a song inspired by darkness. They're both poetry that would not have come to be if humans treated each other and God with the same love and respect that God gives us. At the core of each of these is violence. But thanks be to God, amazing grace encapsulates a message of hope that's also found in the second half of this morning's reading of Isaiah 11. In these well-known words, hope springs up from a stump, or in Hebrew, the geza, which refers to both a tree that's been cut down and a living tree. This living tree, this stump of Jesse, this leader upon whom the Spirit of the Lord shall rest will not only bring about a rightly ordered world, but an idyllic world in which the poor will be treated fairly. Violence will not be part of this world, as can be seen with natural predators being able to lie down together. Differences will still exist, but the king will always render accurate and fair judgment, the text tells us. And while there will still be conflict between nations, they will be settled nonviolently. Who wouldn't want to live in such a world? My friends, the good news this morning is that such a world is possible. I know another school shooting makes us doubt it. I know the state of our political system makes us doubt it. The realities of climate change should really make us doubt it. And on and on the list goes. Threats and challenges assault us from all sides, and if we are not careful, they will be all we see. But as we prepare ourselves for another holiday season, it's coming quickly. As the chill in the air and the shortness of the day reminds us that we're coming close to winter, we should also remember the one who will be coming soon the one who fulfills Isaiah's hopeful words. Do we live in a world in which wolves can dwell with lambs and lions can lie down together? No. At least not for more than a couple of minutes. But there is one who is coming to challenge our cynicism and capture our imaginations, to be the embodiment of hope and love in the world. Our task, our responsibility, is to be a vineyard that produces good grapes, to make choices individually and corporately so that God's justice 
for trans people and immigrants as possible and alive right now. To take steps as a congregation to speak out and stand up for God's righteous hospitality to dreamers and unending love to the working poor and those affected by gun violence. It is not enough for us to live in anticipation of the time that is to come. That is the big theme of Advent that will be here in a couple of weeks. That's not enough. We're striving for this ideal, ideal world. We're supposed to be taking the love and care of God who tends and protects us to everyone we meet. Our tasks, my friends, is to sing a new song. To sing a new song, a song of hard work, a song of love and loyalty, and most of all, a song of hope.
as we come to this time of communion, let's recognize the people of faith that gather around tables just like this one in places near and places far all around the world. They're sharing sourdough, rye, tortillas, crackers, wafers, and even Wonder Bread, all of which represent the body of Christ. They're drinking wine or juice from handmade chalices and silver goblets, a common cup, a golden spoon, and even little plastic mini cups, all of which represent the cup of Christ's new covenant. The bread and the cup unite us with all who would follow Jesus. This meal reaches back through the centuries. This table is not our table. It's not my table. It's not your table. It is God's table. And it has infinite leaves and chairs, and there is always room for your doubts and your hopes, your inadequacies, your strengths, your joy, and your grief. So come to this table where all are worthy and all are welcome. It is here that the Creator, Christ, and Spirit dance as one. So may it always be. Would you please join me in prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. On the night that he was handed over, while at supper with his friends, Christ gave us a pledge of love that does not go away with death. On that evening after dinner, he took bread, he gave thanks for it, and he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples, saying, Take and eat all of you. This is my body, surrendered for you. Then when supper was over, he took a cup, he filled it with wine, he gave it to them and gave thanks for it, and then they shared it. And Jesus said, take and drink, all of you. This is the seal of the new covenant, my poured out life. I will drink this cup with you again at the table of God's joy in the new day that is coming. And whenever you do these things, remember me.
Before I offer the benediction, I want to publicly say thank you to Debbie and DH. They had to plan worship without me this week. Our schedules didn't align, and they did a real good job. It's like they've done it before. <laughs> now hear this benediction. May God bless you with a distaste for superficial worship so that you will live deep within your soul. May God bless you with anger at prejudice so that you will work for justice. May God bless you with tears for those who sorrow so that you will offer comfort. And may God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you, yes, you can make a difference in the world. Go in peace. Amen. <laughs>